Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Justin Barber, author of Man and Dog Through the Newfoundland Wilderness, was born in St. John's, Newfoundland, and grew up in the rural community of Boleyn until his early teens. His family then moved to St. John's, where he went to school and played hockey competitively until moving away to Miramichi, New Brunswick, to suit up in the Maritime Junior A League for four years. Upon returning to Newfoundland, Justin completed a Bachelor of Physical Education and Bachelor of Education at Memorial University. During that time, he played in the Newfoundland Senior Hockey League for seven years before moving to Cartwright, Labrador to teach K-12 physical education and science for a year. He is a provincial champion in high school hockey, AAA midget hockey, men's ball hockey, and he has won a Herder Memorial Championship with the Grand Falls Windsor Cataracts in 2015. Justin is an adventurer, teacher, writer, public speaker, and he runs a successful YouTube channel that documents his expeditions. He credits growing up in the woods of Boline for making him the independent and passionate outdoorsman he is today. Since 2017, Justin has traveled over 2,000 kilometers in the wilderness of Newfoundland and Labrador, accompanied by his Cape Shore water dog, Saku. In 2018, he was sponsored by the Royal Canadian Geographical Society for an expedition in Labrador, and he wrote about it for Canadian Geographic upon his return. Justin Barber lives in Grand Falls, Windsor with his fiancée Heather, their Malamute Husky Bear, and the famous Cape Shore water dog, Saku. All right, Mr. Justin Barber, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me here. You are very welcome. Uh, I just want to tell the listener a little bit about how I uh, found you. It's it's not a super glamorous story in the sense that I was on YouTube one evening and just kind of surfing around and uh, I came across your video. I believe it was one in the series of you canoeing across Labrador with your uh, with, with Saku, your dog. And I watched one of them and I got sucked into all of them and then sub- subsequently got sucked into the, the rest of your videos. And I was so struck by the uh, the adventures you were having and the adversity that you were encountering along the way in really transcending all of that, your your attitude and positive outlook and just the way that you managed to relate to adversity. And I thought it'd be so interesting to sit down with somebody who, you know, voluntarily takes on adversity on a regular basis, seems to really relish in it and derives a lot of meaning from it. So I, that's sort of the the level set for the uh for the conversation. Justin, I was wondering if you could maybe tell the listener a little bit or give them a bit of a recap of the kind of adventures and expeditions that you've been on. I guess 2015 is when I kind of began uh, just dipping my toes in there. And I went just on a a 14-day, 120-kilometer canoe and hiking trip. That one's on the channel, one of the first videos I put up across the Avalon Wilderness area here in Newfoundland. Uh, The year after, I had moved up to... uh, to Cartwright in Labrador to teach for a year. I have education background, of course. And uh, the, the trip the summer before, had uh, the bug got me hard there. So I, I went on another trip at the end of the school year. It was like uh, 60 kilometers down the Sandhill River in Labrador. That was all canoeing, only four or five days. But it was uh, the year after that then, in because uh, that was 2016. And 2017 is when... Uh, I embarked on the expedition across Newfoundland, uh, roughly 700 kilometers, 68-day trip. And I went up from there, and I, I crossed one part of the province. And, and after seeing Labrador living up there a couple of years before uh, their teaching, I wanted to do a trip across Labrador. I thought it was a natural progression, you know? I, I didn't want to cross, uh, you know, go too big and, and cross Canada or something like that, you know? though th- Those are the things I think about. I thought Labrador would be a perfect challenge show. In 2018, I went by canoe again with Saku, and we were. I attempted to actually cross Labrador and Quebec. So essentially, the Labrador Peninsula would have been about 1,700 kilometers. I left a little late in the summer, towards the end of July. Uh, wanted to leave earlier, but just things came into the equation. So I pushed the trip a bit later. So we left late July and I made it, we, me and Saku made it a thousand kilometers. Uh, we were about 150 kilometers into Quebec when a really early winter, earlier than normal even, I mean, winter comes early up in the north up there, but this was uh, first week of October and the lakes were froze up with an inch of ice after a couple of big snowstorms. That trip, I suppose, remains unfinished business. 
But I've gone on other trips since then. I was working to actually go back and finish that trip this summer, but COVID-19 kind of put a fork in that plan or threw a wrench in there or whatever you want to call it. So I went down a trip here in Newfoundland for 52 days. I just got back 10 days ago when I covered about 300 kilometers uh, going through a wilderness reserve here in Newfoundland, the Beta Nord Wilderness Area. It's around 3,000 square kilometers. So I've done that one. I've done other trips, two, three weeks trips here in Newfoundland because there's so many different places you can go. I can almost spend a lifetime covering different regions on the island. But I haven't done anything remotely like that, but I do manage to get up north to the Guane Reservoir in Quebec to do uh, a little bit of a fishing trip every year. And I'm always struck by when we stop back in uh, Mont Laurier on the way down south, how overwhelming it is to be around that many people and traffic and buildings and whatnot. What's it like coming out of the the bush into civilization? How hard or or not hard is that transition for you? It's a bit of an adjustment period, no doubt. You know, after doing it now, I have, uh, well, one, two, three, four, five, no, four trips now have been gone for longer than a month in the last, you know, four years. So, it's getting a bit easier, and I think the first time I got back after crossing Newfoundland and gone for 68 days, I felt, you know, and this, uh, I still get this feeling, you feel uh, almost, I, say, I call it like a bit of a caged animal, because I'm, you know, all day long, I'm always moving for the most part. I mean, there's a scattered break day, but even then there's chores and things to be done. And not that there's, there, there isn't things to be done around home, it's just more cerebral stuff, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot of physical work moving around. So I, 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 I always kind of get that effect each trip. Uh, and to come home and kind of get back to the normal routine, I've had to come up with different methods to cope with it. Little things, even as simple as, you know, I may have to go run a few errands around, you know, running errands. We all <laughs> love it. Not really, but they got to be done. But for me, I just try to be like, okay, this is no different than doing camp chores. You know, I, tr I try to put myself in the mindset as if I was out there because those are the things I really enjoy to do. I guess I work my mindset back to out there and it helps me cope a little bit. Of course, I'm getting much less sunlight and fresh air. I mean, I can go out and hike for an hour or two hours, but I'm not outside for 12 hours a day or more, you know? Uh, well, I guess, you know, you're sleeping in a tent. You can't really say you're going inside if you're sleeping in a tent because it's a very thin shelter. So you're outdoors essentially 24-7. So you lose that. And I even notice in my body, I, I feel a bit different. Like my energy levels even start to go down because I'm, I'm probably because I'm sitting around more. And uh, yeah, I feel like a bit like a fish out of water, you know. So it takes it takes a bit of time to get back in the routine. Uh, I'm always itching to get back out there. It's a funny thing with the trips that sometimes they, when they get hard and difficult, uh, and like this last trip, 52 days, getting towards the end, I was starting to wear down. I'm on my own. I'm doing all the things myself. You get worn down like that. And it, sometimes you're kind of like, geez, it'd be nice to be at the house for a day or two just to recharge, right? Take a break. And geez, then I get home for a day or two and I'm, it's, I'm yearning for it again, you know? You want to get back out there. So it's a kind of a weird effect that when the trips are getting a bit long and tough, you're like, geez, why am I doing this? A bit of self-pity almost. Be nice to be home. And then you get home, you're like, geez, I wish I was back out there. So it has a funny effect. So uh, I just keep busy with, I know I have all these projects to look forward to in my videos. And we'll get into talking about all that and writing and stuff. But those things, having those objectives when I get back gets me on track again and uh i realized that i can keep i can work on those things and eventually i'll get back out there again i'll probably be jumping around a little bit i'll ask you about the, the videos right now actually when, when you're out there on the trip how present are you with being out there in the wild versus thinking about oh that that would be a great shot or i want to get a shot of this or you know people really need to see this how do you balance those two perspectives on the trip we're really just being present with it for yourself as the experience but then also thinking about how it's going to translate back to the audience that you uh have cultivated over time i certainly have a plan before i leave on all the trips on what I'd like to film what some of the key things I'm looking to get, maybe even a bit of a, though the storyline just happens out there, just a couple of ideas of how I'd like maybe the show to work out. So that gives me a good start where I'm not so much out there minute by minute being like, what am I going to, how am I going to craft this? How am I going to craft that? 
I, I wouldn't have to do any of that and just go out there with the camera and things just happen. So you film it as you see fit. I mean, you know, if me and Saku were just paddling for six hours straight on the lake, I mean, I'm not going to film any of that. I might get a, a six second shot of him up in the front and the canoe moving and turn the camera and get another five or six second shot of me moving. So, but then if an animal comes out, oh, you know, I'll get the camera. But if I had seen two caribou already that day, maybe I won't film the next two because I know I already have footage of that. You know, I have a couple conversations or things I'd like to say or messages I'd like to get across. And again, those are sometimes things I have written down before. If not, I always got the notebook with me and I may be in the canoe and say, this is a good idea for something I can talk about when I get here. And I take this book out and write it down. But when I was first getting into filming it, I, I felt, and you, you said it, it was like I, I was going out. I do a lot of smaller trips that I never film. Like I don't go out and take the camera for one night and film a trip like that locally. That's all of myself. But uh, I found early on when I was going on these long trips, you know, three or four years ago, I was like I was trying to film everything. And I was running out of memory cards and, and I got home and most of it was junk. Because I wasn't taking my time and doing it with a strategy, I suppose. Whereas now I kind of have that, and uh, I'm always thinking about that, but that's good. It keeps my mind active when I'm out there, but I, but I don't let it get to me too much. Sometimes you're thinking about it more than I should be, but the good thing about these trips where I'm out there for so long and I have the ration battery more than the memory cards, uh, I can only get so much. So essentially it only ends up being five or ten minutes of a day on average, you know, and then I like to think of it, well, if I'm out there for 50, 50 days, if I can get two to three use, usable minutes a day, I could make a nice documentary or a good series out of it. So some people may think I'm out there, you know, six or seven hours a day with the camera going, but it's not like that. So I do get a lot of time to myself where I can enjoy, you know, the things I want to enjoy when I'm out there, you know, the sunrises and the sunsets, you know, the wildlife encounters and the fishing and all the the things around camp and just the challenges of getting through each each moment. One thing I've really enjoyed is that not only do you show the highlights, but you also also show the lowlights and some of the uh, the foibles that end up happening. How much of what we see is a is a representation of how vulnerable you you end up feeling out there? I'm thinking of the Labrador trip that you had sort of done a montage of waiting. I think it was five or six days for the wind to clear in this one particular area so that you could get on the move again. And I could, you know, I could see it on your face. It looked like that time had really worn on you, just sort of the waiting and the waiting and the waiting. That was also 80. That was also about, I think it was 78 days into the trip. I was, I was weary. <laughs> no, no doubt. How comfortable are you portraying that kind of vulnerability that you experience while, you, while you're on the trip, like the hardships? I try to be as honest as I can about it. And I mean, if something happens in, it will just say the example you just brought up, that was the first time I had turned my camera on in, in about two, I think two, two and a half weeks because of just lack of sunlight. But I felt like that those seven, it was seven days stuck on this peninsula with winds gusting to 120 kilometers an hour and just knowing winter was bearing down on me and starting to realize that I, I probably wasn't going to get to Hudson Bay, which was the end goal on the coast of Quebec in time. You know, once I got the camera roll, I said, the first time I get this roll on, I got to sum up what happened. That was one of the things that would have been great to see the waves. I mean, I'm talking like waves you'd see on the coast of the Atlantic Ocean. Huge. It was on Canny Episco uh, Reservoir there in Quebec. I couldn't capture it, but I wanted to sum it up because uh, I felt I was worn down and... Uh, the waiting had got to me, and I. Th those are the periods when the mental game really starts to, to come into effect. You know, you can only think so much. Time is like time was like it stood still almost. I don't know if you watched the Newfoundland series, that nine or ten part series. Uh, when I flipped the raft over and, and lost Saku, I had the camera roll, and when I attempted to go down these this, these difficult rapids, so once I got down there and realized that we had, you know, things. Worked out, I suppose, half decently for how the, for the situation we had been in. I thought I had to sum that up too, and and uh, try to do my best let people know how it went and how I felt and how I thought Saku felt for the story and to to prove a point. You know that it's not to be messed with out there. It is a playground, but you got to be safe and smart. 
No, I really appreciate that about the videos that you uh, you really take us on the inside of those adventures and really get to see, you know, how brutal nature can be and that it really doesn't care that you're waiting on a peninsula for, you know, five, six, seven, whatever days or that it doesn't care that you want to get down the rapids. It just is, right? Nature judges nobody. There's no judgment, no prejudice, you know, it doesn't matter if you're black or white or, you know, tall or short or you're a good cook in the kitchen or not. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> Everyone gets treated equally. So in a storm like that, it doesn't matter who you are. So, and, and that's something I, I, I'm realizing with each and every trip. It doesn't matter who you are, what you are, what you think you are. You got to wait for the right conditions or the safe route, whatever it might be. You got to be patient. I think that's a great segue into the, uh, some of the mental game aspects that you alluded to that I really want to dig in with you on the first one would be, you know, there's this idea of summit fever, right? You see this a lot with the mountaineers where their identity merges with this idea of summiting and you see people pursuing the goal of summiting at all costs. And many people have lost their lives owing to this so-called summit fever. How do you balance undertaking aspects of the trip on principle? Like in your book, you talk about, you know, not accepting food or a hot shower from some of the, I believe it was the hydro workers who were up in, uh, in Newfoundland versus making a judgment when to be pragmatic, like, you know, ending your, your canoe trip in, in Labrador. So how do you manage unnecessary risk versus, you know, a real goal that you might have around completing the trip or testing yourself or seeing what you're made of? I realized, you know, with some incidents such as the, the incident in the river, we just spoke about that no matter how much I enjoy this stuff, nothing's worth risking my life for because I've been there and I've, I've, you know, I, I suppose I've, I've looked it in the eye, the other side, a, a couple times. And that incident on the Newfoundland trip was the best thing that could have happened to me. That was like hanging over my shoulder the entire trip in Labrador. That, you know, one wrong move. And I may, me and Saku may not make it out of this one this time. You know, that certainly affects my decision making. And uh, with regards to the, to the Labrador trip, I was, you know, at the end of that video, I may have looked worn out. Or, or whatever, uh, physically and mentally, but I felt good. I felt like you continue on because I wanted to and I thought hard, and I wouldn't say I slept for two nights after that just thinking, what do I do? Do I keep going? Uh, I don't really got outfit for, for the winter. I have, fa I have fall gear at best because I didn't expect this. I couldn't feel my feet, and I, and I returned home, and I ended up having uh, the really early onset of frostbite, frost nip, I suppose you'd call it, on, on both my feet. I was getting cold. It's hard to be in a canoe stationary when, when it's minus eight, minus 10 or below with the wind chill. So I knew all these things. And then once the ice started freezing, you know, I even had, uh, I read a lot of the old books, some of the old explorers and, and stuff. And, you know, I felt like, and even some of the stuff on, you know, the indigenous people and they'd overwinter in one spot and right there and then they'd build a toboggan and leave their canoe and leave their gear and keep going. And these are things that cross my mind. But I wasn't proficient enough in any of those things. All I had was my, uh, I guess, the bit of grit that me and Saku had that I could have used to keep plugging myself through another 700 kilometers, you know, rivers a lot of lakes in between the rivers were freezing up so ultimately with that trip you know i had to make a decision and say no because i didn't think it was uh i wasn't ready for it so i didn't want to again back to what i originally said right from the start none of it's worth my life certainly these trips have a goal-oriented effect to them i want to get to the end but along that trip i hit a number of goals you know getting to the high of the land climbing up the red wine river crossing smallwood reservoir uh the biggest body of water in the province, you know, the second biggest reservoir in the world by surface area. Uh, and then getting across Labrador and then into Quebec. So I had hit a number of goals, but, you know, sometimes you got to chalk it up and uh, take the learning experiences and come home. And, you know, I had a little bit of regret, like I should have kept going, but I knew that would have ate me up if I kept lingering on it. So put it behind me and focused on what was next. I really like what you just said there about breaking it up into small goals, right? As opposed to just like creating this artificial situation where it's either a win or, or a loss, right? You either finish or you don't. When you view it as being a continuum where there's a whole bunch of little milestones you can hit, it's possible to derive a lot of reward, I think, all along the trip, right? As opposed to just the finish line. Mm -hmm. Little releases along the way, you know? 
I mean, I, I probably celebrated when I got to the height of land, only uh, uh, about 200 kilometers, a little over that into the trip. And I, uh, you know, climbed up that river and I celebrated there. Not that <laughs> I didn't get too high on my own supply, but, you know, I celebrated like probably the same as I would have when I got to Hudson Bay. You know, that was, I ticked one of the things off the list. So they're important for any you know, dream or a big challenge that you go after in life, you know, I'm sure lots of people listening will understand that I have those little benchmarks along the way uh, are important, not just to be thinking on, if I was thinking on getting to Hudson Bay, the entire trip, 1700 kilometers, well, would have been a lot harder mentally, you know, if that's all I was focused on. Uncertainty and tolerating uncertainty is often very difficult for people. What perspective do you bring to tolerating uncertainty when you're out there, when maybe you don't have the data to make the perfect decision and you're relying on instinct, a little bit of data that you may have, experience? How do you think through that? I love the unknown. That's that's one of the big draws for me. So it's just taking it situation by situation. Everyone who there's I mean, there's lots of people who do trips like I do. Maybe not so many solo, but they're out there, too. Some people they analyze, I just know from reading and watching people analyze the route and they break down every rapid and every corner. And you can do that this day and age for the most part. Most of the maps are accurate, though I've even seen mistakes along the way in some of the rivers and stuff I've been on with regards to maps. But I certainly don't analyze everything like that. I mean, I pick a route. I like some surprises along the way because it gives me, you know, I'm not trying to act like I'm the early, an early explorer back in like the 1700s, the first person to come over to Labrador. I don't want it to seem like that. But for me, I, I enjoy having the same similar experiences as some of these pioneers would have had. So to me, that would be leaving a bit of unknown here and there. And of course, when you're out there, one of the finest things about it is that you're living in the moment. I'm not really focused on what, where I'm going to go tomorrow until I get in the tent at nighttime and I take my maps out and I go over the route, what's coming up tomorrow. But 12 o'clock in the day, if I get to a section where it was supposed to be a rapid and all of a sudden it's a 20-foot waterfall, I just deal with that thing and say, okay, well, I got looks like I got to carry my canoe around here. I might have to slip a bit of a trail here and there. And I don't look any further past it than that. Justin, I'm really curious, where would you assess your confidence as a, as a person when you started these treks versus, you know, the confidence that you experience now having logged all these trips under, under your belt? Do you notice any difference? What, what's that been like for you? In the wilderness and back home, it's, it's multiplied tenfold. Not to sound like I'm too confident, but I just mean, I, I believe time outdoors and in nature is great for the self-esteem. And, and anyone's confidence to get out there, if only because you're self-sufficient, even if you go out with two or three people, you still have your own separate things to do. That self-sufficiency, that independency that comes from a trip outdoors for, you know, a few, you know, three or four days a week. It doesn't have to be 80 odd days. But I do think there's something special with, with spending some time on your own as well and doing some things solo. That gives even more increased confidence, I think. But uh, overall, getting out there is, is huge for the self-esteem. And uh, you come back and, of course, then you've got, I've gotten through a few situations, a few very difficult physical situations, a few difficult mental ones where I couldn't pick up the phone and phone someone and ask how, how they got through it or what they do. Uh, I, couldn't, I can't ask you know, my buddy next to me, what do you think? What should we do? So it's all on me, you know? I, I go to Saku and say, Sack, what do you think we should do here? You know, and he just looks at me and wags his tail and I said, okay, let's do it. So, so yeah, I come back and, uh, and being in those situations, uh, I just feel like I'm capable of, of more. When I'm out there and I get back in, I'm excited to, to get out and put everything in action. And uh, even a good sunset and being out there and, and seeing that can inspire you and give you that just belief put you in awe and then you're like, I can do anything. It reminds me so much of what we talk about clinically. We have this, what's called a risk resource model, where it's the risk you're managing divided by the resource and all that you bring to bear to solve that problem. And ideally you want it to be one-to-one, -one, right? So if you owe a hundred dollars and you have a hundred dollars and it's, it's no problem. If you owe a hundred dollars and you have zero, then you're going to experience distress. So it sounds like on these trips, you're, you're building a real sense of your own resource or your ability to handle things unexpectedly such that any risk that comes along, there might be a sense that you can, you can deal with it. That's what I'm hearing and what you're saying. 
Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, uh, I haven't gotten to any situation where I suppose other than the, the freeze-up, which was out of my control, it was an equipment-related thing. Anything else, I haven't had to turn around and go back the other way, you know? Uh, so recently, I was on a 52-day trip even, and I went down a river here in Newfoundland, and I got to a section where the water was a bit low, so the rapids were worse than they would have been if, if they had higher water levels, and it was a real steep kind of canyon, and I couldn't get down in the canoe. It was too risky. So the only way was to kind of scale uh, the sides of the canyon, which were you know, 75 degrees, extremely steep. And I knew it was only going to take nothing but patience and picking a good route through there, scouting a good route and lugging my gear through. And that will get us to the other side. But being in all those situations, yeah, certainly when I come up to something, uh, whether summer or winter, I've spent a fair bit of time out in the winter now, though I, I, I need to become more proficient in the cold season than in the summer. The summer I've spent more time you know, on the longer trips, but the winter is, an, is a, a, a goal upcoming for me to, to go on a longer winter expedition. But just just those situations and being in so many, uh, certainly, you just get used to it. It's just no different than going up to the mailbox. That's what it becomes. What about uh, what I'm going to loosely call self-inflicted wounds? You, you describe a, a few humorous ones and some more dangerous ones where, you know, like losing a pot or, you know, a, a map falling into the river, things like that. How do you bounce back and continue to move forward on the heels of, of one of those quote-unquote self-inflicted wounds? Uh, well, you know, some of the minor ones, I don't try to be too hard on myself, but I'm someone, and I'll, I'll be honest about this, is I hate losing things. You know, and I'll, I'll put in time if it's not going to cost me time on the trip or put me in a bad situation. I had a series on the... Uh, I, I did a trip in Gray River. That's another one I did, 18 days last summer. And I lost my GoPro, which is very valuable, $600. And it fell off my – I was just walking with it, clamped onto my paddle, it hooked into some Tuckermore tangly bush and lost it. And I said, I'm finding it. So I ended up spending a full day. Now, something like that path that I would have lost in the Crossing Newfoundland trip, uh, I lost it that evening and said, oh, I've got another one. That's fine. I was only going to take one anyways. The next day I was still at that campsite. I walked down because the river was frozen, but I knew where the river poured out into the pond, it'd be open. So I took a spin down. Maybe it was bobbing around down there. I didn't see it. Didn't lose no sleep. You know, wasn't worked up about it. It just depends on what it is. But, you know, you can't, of course, everything, it's not just the physical wear and tear that, that grinds you down when you're out there. I mean, the more you worry and you're stressed, just like at home, I mean, it's going to, that's depleting my energy resources too. So as I've done more of these trips as well, uh, I've became more conscious of that too. Just, okay, that doesn't need to be worried about. That's minor because that's going to take up my energy, right? All these things are just chiseling away at me because I'm only out there on my own. I'm burning a lot more calories where I got to do everything myself. So I try to manage the energy that, that way. But then, you know, bigger things like uh, – like the incident in the Newfoundland trip, uh, you know, on the river with the capsize. Yeah, that one, that one hovered over me for a couple weeks, just being like, you know, uh, am I taking it too far? Is this even worth it? You know, I almost lost my life and my dogs. Uh, but there's only one way, one real good way to learn. It's by doing things. So I try to use that motto is that, you know, learn by doing and by doing you're going to fail a few times and, and make a few mistakes you can't be afraid of that either it's just uh try to sweep it under the rug as quick as you can i guess don't sweat the minor things but it's okay for some of the bigger stuff to to linger for a bit because you know you know yourself your mind has to heal and you just can't shut it out right away somewhere along the lines failure got a bad reputation but i mean that's how we learn and I'm a big fan of doing things badly in order just to get them done. Then you learn and then, and then move forward as a reforming perfectionist myself, right? Like if you wait for everything to be perfect, probably you're never even going to start or, or let alone finish. So I think just do it badly and then do it again and then do it again and do it some more. And then eventually you learn over time. Yeah. You're a bit of a perfectionist yourself or you, you tend to go that way sometimes. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Me too. I am a hundred percent overthinking things sometimes. 
But I think that's, you know, if you're going to take on big things and, you know, step outside your comfort zone, I think a little bit of that's okay too. Or if you want to really hone your craft, you know. Well, if you look at anybody who's done anything extraordinary, they, they typically have one trait of their personality that they're an extreme outlier on. Yeah, I agree. Right. It might be conscientiousness or creativity or, or, or something. So it's hard to imagine taking on. Actually, you know, one of the ideas that I had, and I'm, I'm regretting now that I didn't do it. I was going to send you a personality inventory before we did the podcast, get a sense of what your profile was. And then maybe you know, I was going to try and guess what it was, but then also chat with you about it, about some of the attributes you have pers- personality wise that may allow you to do uh, these kind of things. Sleeping in the backcountry is notoriously difficult. I think the last four times I've slept in a tent, I'm I'm 0 for 4 in terms of getting even something remotely close to a full night's sleep. Uh, there's lots of sounds. It's surprisingly loud out there, actually, is, is what I've noticed. There's all kinds of racket going on. It's not that sort of like pristine silence that people imagine. There's always the threat of, of an animal coming up or, you know, a squirrel sounds like a bear in the middle of the night. You know, Justin, in your experience, what is the impact of a lack of good sleep on your judgment, frustration, mood, morale uh, when, when you're out there? Yeah. Oh, well, it's like anything else, I suppose. I mean, when you're tired, you're going to make mistakes. I keep track of how many nights I've spent out now. And I think it's something I can't remember. I wrote it down when I got back. Around 350 nights, give or take. Uh, so it's, it's gotten a lot easier for me to the point where I'd prefer to sleep there than in the bed at the house. I think I said it in the book, when you're, out, when you're outdoors, it's more or less a series of naps than a real solid sleep. You just nap and then you, wait, you, know, you wake up and you have another nap and you get a half a dozen naps throughout the night. Uh, and, and each one, you know, you wake up. It's not bad because, you, you know, you're like, I'm going to go back to sleep again. So you do that. Everyone likes that effect when you wake up and you're tired and you want to go back to sleep again. But I've gotten used to, you know, sleeping on not a level surface. Sometimes your head's lower than your heart, you know, so you might wake up with a bit of heartburn if I ate too much salt before, you know, because I'm always trying to get extra salt in there where I'm sweating a lot. Situations like that, I've I've became accustomed to it. Uh, I don't really feel too tired. I more or less feel, I guess my my body feels a bit sore and tired and stuff like that, but I never really wake up. I'm, I'm usually you know, beaming to get up and, and, and see the day and greet the day. And Zach was up long before me. His tail is beating off the tent like crazy. Uh, so I kind of get excited to get up when I'm out there every day. I don't ever really wake up and be like, geez, I wish I had more sleep last night. That doesn't ever happen out there. It, I remember it did times early, but now, you know, it never really happens. It's more or less just waking up and your, your body's tired, physically tired. Uh, but my mind feels refreshed and rested. If that makes any sense, just cause I'm used to it, but people who don't spend much time, I can imagine you wake up and even Heather comes out with me, my fiance, and I know we'll go camping for a night. And she, you know, she has the inflatable mattress. I usually sleep on the foam sleeping pad. She has a nice inflatable mattress. You know, why not bring the comfort? We're not going too far. And she'll, geez, we'll have seven, eight hours, even longer when you're out there. Sometimes I sleep nine and 10 hours because I'm going to, we go to bed when it's dark, you know, uh, say now it's fall creeping up, uh, even towards the end of my last trip, it could be getting dark eight or nine o'clock. Usually when it's dark, it's not much longer and you're asleep, uh, you know, and then you're getting up when the sun rises and that's what was happening a lot with me this summer and usually does. I'm kind of up really early, uh, but you know, you know, back to Heather, she'll wake up and uh, she'll say, geez, I'm tired. You know, I feel because I woke up a lot last night. I woke up, you know, six or seven times. And I said, so did I. (laughs) But I understand. I'm used to it and you're not. The fatigue affects me more and my decisions at the end of a long day. Like, you know, if I do a nine, 10 hour day, well, come eight or nine hours. If it's a day that involved maybe a bit of portaging mixed in with paddling, you know, late in the day, you're getting tired, right? And then I'm like, I may slip or I may fall on a rock. Things I wouldn't have done 10 o'clock in the morning because my body's tired and I'm rushing and I want to get to camp and get it set up. You're getting a bit weary. So that's when fatigue affects me the most. Uh, Not so much from the sleep. Do you try and slow yourself down in those moments where you, you know, you have a sense of yourself where it's like, okay, it's the end of the day. I've been on the go for 10 hours now. I'm, I'm the most vulnerable I've been all day now to making a mistake. 
do you slow, do you slow yourself down and purposefully go through in a different way than you did at the beginning of the day? Absolutely. Yeah. All it takes is one little slip or one fall or, you know, I drop something out of my hand and I'm like, okay, we're getting here. And then it's kind of like, you got to be focused on it each and every step. You know, you're kind of walking on uneven surfaces a lot, but a lot of times if you're, if you're, if you're doing a bit of hiking or going and, and I notice a little slip or fall like that, I notice that and then I'm more on after it. Just got to sharpen up and slow it down. You've accumulated a pretty big data set at this point about uh, around timeout in the wild. Uh, what are the hardest times to endure and why? What seems to consistently be the most difficult psychologically to, uh, to cope with? The waiting. Yeah. The wait, waiting around, especially when you're on your own. I mean, there's only, there's times where I waited for, not only the situation we spoke about earlier, waiting for a week, I've waited, I've done a week before and a separate trip waiting for weather on the Newfoundland trip. And uh, you just kind of hibernate like a beer, you know, because of course it's not like I'm going out and just staying in one spot for a month and getting someone to pick me up and going home. I'm constantly covering ground. I only have so much food, you know, uh, a lot of times in the summer it's fishing. So it's not like, unless I'm about to die, I can't really go kill something that's going to give me even more energy and calories, like, you know, a caribou or something. So I really got to manage my energy in those situations. So you're just kind of sitting around and I do a fair bit of writing then and I may write a poem, I could draw a picture, whatever, things to keep my mind active because it becomes just tiring and, and time starts to get very slow and one day feels like three. Once you've spent, you know, in a situation of waiting somewhere for, you know, a week plus to wait, you know, for whatever it might be, late to one hour, conditions to improve, uh, you know, you're waiting around and uh, after a couple days, you're not even tired no more because you've, you've slept and you're not doing nothing. So then it gets to the point where you're sleeping four or five hours a night and you're waking up and it's just long days. So they become taxing on the mind, but it's just about keeping the mind busy and, you know, writing up, okay, list of things I want to do when I get home, who I want to try to pitch the book to little things that I do to try to take me away from the waiting, the, the, the monotony of waiting. That, that would probably be the most difficult time on this trip. I just went down for 52 days I forced myself to stay in one area for nine or 10 days. Uh, I was doing a couple little, I guess we'll say personal tests, uh, doing a few things that, you know, based on situations that I think may occur in the future. Anyhow, I was waiting around and uh, I just, because I've often thought about it, geez, it'd be nice to go out for a couple months and build a cabin, a little tilt even in the middle of nowhere and spend uh, two months in that one spot and do a bit of hunting and fishing. Don't bring much food with me. But I don't, you know, uh, after having these experience several times now, I'm not on these trips. I find the most difficult time is the waiting. I like to be going, maybe have a day off here or two days there, but I like to be going day after day after day. And every trip for me in the future will be like that. May not be 12 hour days consistent, consistently, but even if, if I say, well, I could take a day off today, I almost feel better going for two or three hours just to say I advanced somewhere and I did something, I seen something new that takes away the waiting side effects. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it does sound like you need to see yourself on the right track in order to be feeling at your best. I mean, that's so true of psychotherapy and life in general, right? Our brain is watching us to see if we're on the right track. And if it's not, it tends to sort of generate low mood or distress to let us know that we're not going in the right direction that we've and we need to uh, mobilize action to, to have something different. That's right. You got to be, your, your mind wants you to be progressing somewhere or some, some way. Do you ever have moments either during the waiting or perhaps just randomly as you're moving about of sheer panic or terror of like, oh my God, I am literally in the middle of nowhere. Like I know you take some safety precautions and you have some gear with you that would allow for, you know, that allows you to stay safe. But are there ever, are there ever moments where you, if we, if we think sort of too hard about what's going on, that uh, it, it becomes a little bit overwhelming? Those thoughts never, never cross my mind. I guess you you're kind of, it's like a claustrophobia effect almost. Exactly. I'm thinking particularly with the waiting, right? Where there's, say there's an element that's against you, like the, you know, ice or wind, it's an immovable object. And you're like, I am literally trapped here on some level, right? I, I basically, I just need to endure this until it's over. Those were the, exactly. Those are the kind of moments where I'm wondering where, you know, if you if your psyche might take you to a place of sort of mental claustrophobia to use that term a little bit loosely, but. 
that's happened once or twice in those waiting situations. And, and thinking about it now, one thing I've used was, you know, just outside St. John's, uh, you know, 10 years ago when uh, I was always into the outdoors, you know, growing up and stuff. And I got into the hockey and it took a back seat. But when I started getting back into it again and getting out there and just, you know, taking a few one night trips or just going down for a few hours in the day, it would be outside St. John's in a small community called Balleen. 30 minutes outside, but you can get off the main road and you, you get that wilderness feeling like you're away from everything. You don't really hear many vehicles. So in those situations, I'm just like, okay, I'm just there now. I'm down in Balleen, you know, St. John's is only 20 minutes away. Perfect. And that's it. Justin, in your book, you seem to be very adept at fostering what, what I call a, like radical ownership of your decisions and their consequences, uh, especially any missteps. What factors do you feel contribute to your ability to do this, to really own your decisions no matter uh, what the outcome? You don't seem like someone who would externalize or, or blame other factors for, for what's happened. You really seem to sort of take ownership. My choice to be out there, basically. You know, no one's forcing me to do it. So I'm out there. If I make a mistake, <laughs> I can't look around and point fingers at somebody. You know, Saku's just doing the best he can. Like, you know, I can't point fingers at him. Yeah, I'd just be like, okay, well, that was a mistake I made. Uh, try to remember that so I don't make it again. So I have a question for you that has sort of a mental health angle to it. And I'm nesting it sort of within the idea of evolutionary psychology. The idea is that do you think the way of life that you have while you're out there could have mental health implications for the positive, really? I've often had this fantasy of having a one week therapy camps where there's no choice but just sort of to survive and strip down life to its basics, right? Where you got to sleep, eat, uh, maybe hunt, th things like that. Um, what do you think about that idea? Do you, you've, I, I believe in your videos and in the book, you've alluded to the idea that perhaps this is the way that we're supposed to live and that there's a certain sense of contentedness that one can access while being out there in the wild, having this more, uh, in some ways, simplified existence, but in some ways it's also still very complex, right? So what do you think about that idea of this kind of a life maybe being the way that we're supposed to be in terms of promoting our, our wellness and happiness? I don't want to push the lifestyle on nobody. I mean, it's certainly how we're designed to live. I believe it a hundred percent, but it's your own choice. If you want to, you know, step back and, and simplify your life and, uh, you know, spend more time outdoors or, or whatever it might be to give you a different perspective of life. But one of the reasons why I think it, it's, it's, can be great mentally it's because you're you're always changing environments always seeing new things you know every other day you're coming through new areas you're having new campsites new homes every other night what different wildlife so i think that's important on the on the on the mind and i've read a bit about it how like the indigenous people even which is you know hasn't been that long ago we've progressed really quickly in the last what 50 years 100 years but they were always changing. They were nomadic. They were changing environments every day. They may have passed through the same route, uh, you know, annually to go up a river in the summer and get somewhere in the winter and turn around and come back later in the spring. But always on the move day after day. And that's, I'm sure you've probably read a, a bit about that and, and seen that and how, how, how much of a benefit that is for our mind because a lot of times we just go to work and we come back to the house and we go to work, you know, we may go to the gym or we... Uh, you may go out to the pub or whatever you like to do in your spare time, but that, does, that doesn't take very long. That's like an hour or two here and there. And then you come back to the house and everything sort of gets the same. And so I feel like even to get out uh, and hike different places every weekend, just to change that environment, it gives you a fresh perspective of, of life. And uh, everyone should spend some time to themselves. Every time I've gone out and spent a long time out here, it's been an amazing period in my life. I get, I get to focus on myself only, which to some people may sound a bit selfish, but they should be more selfish and focus on themselves too. Cause that's, you're important, just as important as everything else, but to get out, focus on yourself, uh, find answers to some of the personal questions that you might have, not like about why the world exists, just personal things that you'd like to know. Uh, maybe a, a challenge you want to challenge yourself or something, anything in your life. But so I think getting out there on your own, you can you can focus. And I and I 
I really believe that, you know, if you want to set goals and go after dreams, often you got to do that alone without distractions. And a lot of times, especially, you know, in the last half a dozen years with the increase of the social media and the screen time and, you know, we're, we're almost too connected, you know, to be able to FaceTime every day, you know, with people, with anyone. We, it's hard to get time for yourself. And I think that's when you truly figure out what you need to do. And you get away from dis- distractions, you know, diversions, uh, even other opinions and things that could affect your inner voice, you know, your desires, what you really want to do yourself. So getting out there for uh, even a good nature, you know, go out and go for a hike for a couple, two or three hours on a Saturday morning on your own, you know, or maybe you and your spouse go and you stay 20 feet apart and you both have your own time to just kind of think because a lot of people are afraid of that time. I think they don't like it. They don't like being faced with their own thoughts or emotions or whatever it might be for a long period of time, right? Maybe for 20 minutes driving to work, they can handle it. Uh, but I think when you do that, you can open up some, some new, a new mindset and a new, maybe a new belief in yourself or whatever it might be. So I think those are some of the important things I've noticed about being out there and disconnecting and yeah, spending time to yourself and just getting outdoors in general. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'll toss in a little bit of neurobiology around this. Dopamine is a surprise calculator in the brain, right? So basically, dopamine calculates the difference between what we expect to happen and what actually happens. And when something neat happens, you come around the corner, there's a moose or a caribou or whatever. Dopamine goes off because there's a violation of your expectation. That's also when learning happens, right? That's one of the most effective ways to facilitate learning is to have a violation of one's expectations. So there's, there's a lot of unexpected outcomes, which are very pleasurable for the brain. There's a lot of learning that's happening. Dopamine is also a pattern recognition uh, chemical, neurochemical as well. So when you've got the dopamine going, you can think through things and start to see patterns between things in a way that perhaps may not have been obvious before. Right. So I think the the novelty and the learning, it all comes together. And I do agree with you. I think a lot of folks are really quite uncomfortable sitting with their own thoughts. And I was really wondering about that, you know, that the impact that that amount of time on your own would have from an introspective perspective. Uh, and it does sound like it, it's quite it's quite powerful. It reminds me of people who go on 10 day silent retreats in a way. Right. By the end, they often have a lot of really important insights about what they need to do with their life, what's important, where the meaning lies and where they want to take things yeah you get a clearer path of your of your future moving forward you know you don't know you don't want to go too far into the future or too far in the past ever i find you know here and there but you want to be as present as as possible uh but those times to get out yeah you can certainly do that and you can be yourself too you know to the to the nth degree like you are yourself i'm my truest self when i'm out there you, you know you can really be you and do the things you need to do at any point in time. So yeah, even I recommend that even a seven or 10 day retreat, you know, I've heard of people doing and stuff like that. Even, even one night to go out and camp in the tent and sit by the fire in the evening. And, you know, once you get past that fear of animals and stuff, which is different everywhere in the world, you know, but locally across Canada, there's not too many places, you know, you know, we got grizzlies out in the West and stuff. That's a side story, and that all comes with experience and that. But once you're comfortable with the area you're in and you're proficient, to go out and spend a night or two and sit back, and I think it would do wonders for anybody. Well, I, com- I completely agree, and that's certainly been my experience. Again, I'm, I'm in no way going to compare our experiences. They're, they're apples and oranges at, at the very least, but the few times I have spent extended time in uh, in the woods, like Algonquin Park or, again, up in the Gouin Reservoir, uh, it really just sort of, again, reduces that uh, – it cleans up that signal-to-noise ratio and adds a lot of clarity. Justin, can you tell me a little bit about your motivation for for sharing your adventures and your expeditions with, with the public? And I'm in sort of in the same conundrum in a way, and I'll explain what I mean. On the podcast, I have made a lot of noise about how destructive I think that social media is. And yet, at the same time, here I am doing a podcast that I hope a lot of people listen to. So there's a little bit of a contradiction in there. 
right? And, and you had alluded to the same thing too, right? Like, you know, there's a lot of distractions, screen time, things like that. And yet, you know, I'm rooting for you to have as many viewers as possible because I think you're sharing some really cool stuff with people. So I guess, you know, what is your motivation for sharing the adventures? And then how do you sort of knit together the potential contradiction of, you know, social media having these potential negative effects, but also being a really valuable platform for getting your uh, message out into the world? Yeah, I know. I'm asking everyone to sit down, you know, and watch my show for an hour here and there, right? It's a balance. You know yourself now. Everything's a balance. Just you can't go overboard with anything. And social media has given me the opportunity uh, to make a, a living off something I love to do. And, it, you know, lots of people are doing it. I mean, it doesn't matter. You could be passionate about tiddlywinks and you can make a living off it if you want to do, you know, enough. So with regards to the motivation to do it, when I was growing up in uh, in elementary school, I always loved show and tell. I'd be so excited to bring in, you know, a toy or something or whatever it was to bring it in and explain it and get up and say how it performed and what I would use it for. And so I think that's always been in with a part of me is, is, the, is the want and the desire to share things with people and, and let them know, uh, you know, what's possible or what can be done or... To be honest, I wanted to be outdoors and I enjoyed it and I enjoyed sharing things. So after I had taught for four years, I had seen other, you know, explorer, adventurers, whatever you want to call us <laughs> who like to roam and do this kind of stuff that uh, if I wanted to make a living at it, I, I, I'd have to share it. That's basically, it's no different than any other artist. If you want to make a living as a musician, you got to share your music. You know, if you want to make a living as a, you know, as a painter, you got to share your stuff. So I thought, you know, people have written books and, and film trips and it worked out for them. They went and spoke about it. Well, I don't mind talking. That's one thing I don't mind doing. So I, I could check that one off the list. I was never too anxious about getting up in front of people. That never bothered me so much, especially when it's something you're passionate about and something you enjoy to talk about. Uh, and then I got into the filming and, and whatnot. So I would practice a little bit and I was right at a blog and I'd write a bit on that and I started making a few videos and I wouldn't share them. I just come home and watch them to myself. And I was like, okay, now I'm going to take the next, next step and start to share it online. And then I created like the Facebook pages and this kind of stuff. Uh, started pursuing some speaking events and this, the ball just started rolling. It was a snowball effect and people enjoyed it. I've, I've seen people getting inspired from it and say, you know, I used to love the outdoors, but I've in, in the last 10 years of my life, I've neglected it because of time constraints or more or less they weren't making enough time for things that they really enjoyed. You know, so I've got comments like that and people who not necessarily went on wilderness expeditions, but some person wrote me one time on, on a YouTube comment, I believe it was. I think this was an email. It was an email and they said, uh, not so big into the wilderness stuff, but really like nature and you're, you know, you're watching your expeditions. I don't want to go out for even a week, but I just like adventure. So they bought it like a Volkswagen, whatever, one of these buses, and they end up planning a trip across Canada with their family because they watch this, the video series. And, and once I started getting feedback, you know, it was uh, like the dopamine we spoke about earlier. Oh, geez, that feels good for people to enjoy my stuff. And, it was worth my time and it's something I like to do. And so I just kept doing it. How much do you worry about ego or fame or, you know, something externally derived taking away from the purity of your experience? Is that at all a concern? I mean, you don't strike me as a fellow who's very preoccupied with those sorts of things, but you know, you're also a human being too. And, you know, we always want to increase our prestige in a group and to be, and to be liked by people. So how do you feel like you balance the, those, those opposing forces? I never want to put myself on a pedestal above anybody else, you know, any other person. This is just something I enjoy to do and I'm going to go out and share it. And, and I don't want, I don't do it to prove anything to anyone. You know, I, I didn't want it to be like that. I was just always an athlete and I enjoyed challenges. And then once my, I rekindled my love of the outdoors, I really wanted to do that. So, you know, I know I've made sort of a brand where it's, you know, it's me, Justin Barber, who goes out and does these big, crazy trips. I hate when people come up to me and say, oh, my God, you're, you know, you're this and you're that. No, oh, that's the that's the the guy who went across Newfoundland. Like, I don't that stuff. 
I don't, I don't really like having those encounters in public. I just end up saying, yeah, I'm just that, that bushwhacker who walks through the woods. No big deal. You know, I don't really like dealing with that. And that's not where I want to be, but I'm sure people are going to have their own thoughts and, you know, uh, opinions on how it might be. Uh, but for me, I'm just someone who, who loves the outdoors and loves a good challenge. And I just want to share it, you know, and it's no different than someone who, you know, went and tried to climb Everest or go to the North Pole or go, you know, you know, across the Antarctica or whatever it might be. You know, it's no different than that. And I'm sure they all went through similar situations. Uh, I just want to do what I'm doing and be me. And if I could get away with it, I'd cancel all social media and YouTube and everything else. If I knew I could just go out and do what I'm doing and, and maybe just write some books on it, you know, but because sometimes that it adds an, another element to us. Uh, but I realize no matter what you're doing, uh, what, what your job is, it, you could be working at your passion. There's always little things that are part of the, the job that you don't like. It doesn't matter how much you love something. You know, I'm, you love your job, clinical psychologist. I'm sure it's something, you, you know, you've worked up to be for a long time. You're a professional. You love all aspects of it. But there's certain things that are just tedious and, you know, you could go without them too. No discussion with Justin Barber would be complete without some consideration of the influence that uh, Saku has on the trip. I'd love to hear about what it's like having him along for the journey and what you think it would be like without him, if you can even imagine that. Yeah, Saku's a huge piece to the puzzle. I had done a couple trips, uh, a few of the smaller ones early, and I went down my own, you know, 14 days, just me. And that didn't bother me at all. It was my first time getting used to being out there on my own. I always wanted a dog growing up, and between hockey and all this kind of stuff, uh, we didn't end up getting a family pet. But it was something I always, I always wanted, and I knew when I – you know, got older and moved out and got my own house and all this good stuff that I was going to get a dog. And once I started getting into this and I said, you know, uh, a dog, a good, you know, a hardy dog, a dog that's meant to be outdoors a lot would enjoy this and it would be a great companion. Uh, you know, I was branching off and doing this on my own. I'm sure it's not hard to believe that it was difficult to find people to go out and take this much time off and plan these trips. So it became a bit of an obsession of my own just because I wanted to keep going a little further and a little further. And I knew it would have to be that it had to be that way. Uh, if I wanted to continue doing it. So I thought I'm going to get a dog and he's going to be my tripping partner and he can help out along the way. You know, he, he carries his own food, and later in the trips, once his food is gone, he can carry some of my stuff. Uh, contagious energy is a big thing I, I get from Saku. It's just a strange sort of like you get a vibe from seeing him ahead of me, and he's flying up the riverbank, or he's swimming across, you know, the side of a lake, or, you know, whatever it might be. He's excited to get up in the morning. You get that. It's contagious, and I, and I get that from him. So he brings a lot to the table. He's like, you know, he's not going to protect me from any threatening wildlife, like, you know, an aggressive bull moose or a beer or something. But he's certainly an alarm system around the campsite and in anywhere. I mean, we could be getting ready to go around a corner and he sticks his nose up in the air and he starts sniffing and smelling. And then we go around the corner and there's a moose, you know, or it could be a squirrel. But he, with him, I know there's something there. And uh, he's going to know long before I do. So lots of those factors are key key with having him out there and you know dogs don't complain not like humans <laughs> <laughs> so you know they can uh sack is going to go and go and go and most times i'm like all right sack you're too far ahead you know he's usually 20 or 30 yards ahead but he might get into the bushes somewhere and i'm always calling him back uh because he's just gone he's bouncing around from rock to rock and bush to bush uh, and so he's certainly not being like, well, when are we taking a break or geez, we should go home now. You know, a dog like Saku, I mean, I'm, I'm, I would never recommend that someone, you know, takes like a, a, and I'm sure anyone wouldn't, but you know, like a little poodle or something out on a trip like this, that's, that's obvious, uh, not cut out for it, but a good hardy dog, they love being out there. So great partner for sure. Right on. 
Uh, Justin, do you have any uh, upcoming adventures that you've got sort of on a notepad somewhere that you're kicking around? What's what's on your uh, fantasy list uh, at the moment? I've got a few things that I'm uh, scheming up, I guess. Probably won't be for a couple of years because it takes time to put those in place. I'd like to go back and finish my trip across in the Labrador Peninsula and leave from Quebec there and finish that one off. That could be something I do next summer. But it's going to be some you know, over the next couple of years, a lot of smaller trips within the province because pretty much there's all terrain here. You know, there's, of course, we got the mountains on the West Coast, so I can do some hiking and navigating through there. And then we got the rivers and, you know, rivers aren't so big here in Newfoundland, but up in Labrador, we got the big rivers and the lakes. So I can put myself in a lot of different situations in, in winter and summer. And that's what I plan to do over the next couple of years to work towards a longer, a longer trip, which I haven't nailed down yet. And I guess I'll leave it there. Sometimes uh, once you start saying things then you got to start explaining yourself and I'd like to, you know, it's like action before words kind of thing, you know? Stay tuned, I suppose. There's always going to be trips in the woods. I can't get enough of it. Well, Justin, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with me today. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. It was such a cool experience to have an insider's window into all the amazing expeditions that I've watched on uh, on YouTube and the, and the book that I've read. So thank you so much for, uh, for sharing your insights with us today. I really appreciate it. No problem, Pete. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity and with a great chat. Very interesting. And I, I can imagine... Me and you uh, spent a few nights out in the woods, or even longer. We'd have certain, uh, certainly have some interesting chats about the psychology side of it, no doubt. For sure, we'd have a lot of world problems solved. I'm, I'm sure as oh, well. Oh man, over a couple cups of tea. Abs- abs- absolutely. Well, thank you so much, and uh, I hope we get a chance to talk again soon. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.